Well, uh, today it's a little warmer down here. How is it up there in Dallas? What temperature do you got? Uh, it's 66 degrees today. Oh, see? So what, I'm looking at my watch. 64. So this this is the first day in a long time I put some shorts on. Now, I got the whole long sleeve hoodie shirt thing on top, shorts on bottom. So I'm trying to warm up the blood to go down to the legs to cool off like a car. But but I'm I'm excited. I'm wearing shorts. So I just wanted to announce that. Significant that's event. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the title of this episode. <laughs> uh how how about up there how about up there in in uh in seattle richard Uh, i think it's a high of 50 i was in los angeles last weekend where it was too Uh hot it was like 80 like i can't handle that anymore i need winters to be like winter so i'm glad to be home have have you been to those uh those plant pods they have downtown yet no i saw that between the plant pods and the uh cashier less grocery stores i don't know what's going on in seattle right now but i need to to check those out next thing you know you're going to be going to amazon to uh renew your driver's license that, that like i get fun. my insurance there now apparently so they're huh? they're, they're a one-stop shop that's right well uh you know so why don't you introduce yourself briefly guest hi i'm emily tate a product manager here with pivotal labs and uh, I, we wanted to have you as actually, as always, Richard's idea uh, to have you on. He has all the good ideas. And uh, you gave a talk at uh, Spring One Platform, the most awesome name conference ever recently, um, I think on a topic that I especially like. And uh, I, I think most of our, our listeners will, which is like enterprises, crazy. And, uh, and, and more, you know, more it actually had a, a different title. That was my title. But I think, I think what was interesting about your talk was the, uh, uh, as we would say around here, there was a large degree of empathy in it. Still maybe some snickering, but sort of empathy of like, how do these companies get this way and uh, how might we solve them? And then, mm-hmm. and then peppered with Dilbert cartoons. I haven't seen Dilbert cartoons in a long time, so that was refreshing. I noticed at some point they switched over to wearing badges on lanyards on their neck. Which maybe that dates uh, my bookmark in Dilbert Toctobia. I don't know what to call that, but <laughs> anyhow, off to a fresh start here. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. But before we get to that, we'll go. We'll go over some news things here. Uh, just some little items we've been co- uh, collecting. Now, this, just yesterday, our our good friends over at Red Hat. It looked like they they're uh, they're acquiring CoreOS for the uh, the fine sum. Of two hundred fifty million American dollars, which which uh, that's that's a you know uh, if you're into grandioseness, you could also say a quarter of a billion dollars, which is which is always fun. Uh, but you know that's uh, I you know correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Richard. But CoreOS nowadays, uh, a lot of what what they're known for is having a Kubernetes distribution, right? Yeah, that's fair. They've done some pretty cool things with Linux. They are sort of the open source uh, maintainer of things like Rocket, the other lesser known container engine versus Docker, and also etcd and Flannel. So, I mean, they've got some cool tech, some smart people. It's probably a smart move by Red Hat, so well done there. I think you'll probably see more consolidation in this remarkably overheated container space. Mm, Remarkably overheated. What I would be having if I was wearing pants instead of shorts today. That's what I was thinking. I said that because I was thinking of your your long sleeves and your shorts combo. That's that's stuck on my brain now. That's right. You know, there's there's a, uh, if winding is still a word, there's a winding, weavy uh, story of how one day me talking to CoreOS made me end up having a job at Pivotal. I'll have to save for a, a fireside chat mysteriously with no fire one day. 
that that would be fun. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. as no, as yeah, as you say, a, as you say, I think it's it's, it's indicative it's of the uh, the interest in 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 the Kubernetes space and and also I remember you know when I was introduced to them, I was looking this up. I uh, apparently wrote the first report at Four Five One Research back about them back in 2014, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, Alex over there, their CEO. He had this. Uh, I don't know what you would call it. Sometimes epiphanies come from lateral thinking, as De Bono would tell you, with his uh, multiple colored hats and whatnots. Uh, but you know, I, he he had this he had this fun epiphany that was like, "Have you ever noticed how Chromebooks just update on their own, and Firefox just updates on their own, and no one ever notices, and it's really cool?" And he was like, "We should do that for servers." And I don't know if that necessarily panned out as a major thing they were doing, but I think starting from that basis of like, uh, we should stop doing dumb stuff <laughs> and, and do the smarter thing when it comes to patching and updating was that was that was a fun start to what they had. And I think like a lot of people in this space, uh, they've been driven by the uh, the cloud native interest, where in this case, cloud native means Kubernetes. Uh, mm-hmm. Entry, yeah. I don't know if that's entry one or two in, in Roger's book of technology, but it's somewhere in there. They did some good things with updating Linux and, and some of the patterns they introduced. So it'll be interesting to see how Red Hat incorporates them. You know, does that change any of their own backend components when they launch their own Kubernetes pieces? I mean, it's all the container stuff's fascinating. It almost feels like as we deal with containers, it's kind of skating where the puck is and serverless is where the puck is going. So I mean, I think mm. you have to keep an eye on the next thing while you also satisfy the current thing. So that's where this whole market's fascinating because we're all now starting to get a wandering eye to different patterns of functions and things like that while, hey, containers are just becoming mainstream. So how do you kind of balance all those? Pivotal's trying, Red Hat tries, Microsoft tries, Amazon, Google. But if you're a, uh, a customer, I'm just going back to, to probably what we'll talk about with Emily. Boy, how do you balance all this and make sure you just don't overwhelm tech teams with all this tech changes? It's, uh, it's tricky. Mm, indeed. That's the hockey one, if I remember. That's the that's the uh, Gretzky sort of quote. Yeah, I got to bring yeah. sports every now and then. Mullet strategy. Well, uh, as here, here's one of those exciting items that I haven't read about, but I probably should have, so you can inform me. So also, there's uh, the general availability of Azure Event Grid. So what is that, Richard? Yeah, they announced this a few months ago as like a preview. And what this is, is a kind of a managed event processing service or routing service. It sits there underneath your Azure account and listens in on things like, hey, VM change events and storage things. And so all the services in Azure, for example, throw off information. Hey, I you know did this, did that. And this gives you that one sort of bus to subscribe to. And you can write your own events into that. So really just kind of, you know, spin up functions whenever someone creates a VM. It just really helps event-driven architecture. It's something that for some reason is novel. Like other clouds don't have this idea of a single place to subscribe to sort of system events and and things like that. So it's really cool tech. I'm, you know, I know the team that made it and it was, they did some really good work on here that was pretty interesting stuff. So I think you'll see some people copy it because it is a good idea. And if you're an Azure customer, it's a cool way to, to start building event-driven apps. Mm, you know, that reminds me, uh, I should put a link to this. I was uh, I was catching up on just news in general. And there's a, uh, uh, you know, I use Instapaper a lot. And so whenever anything's over like four minutes long, it's, I consider it long. But there's this, according to Instapaper, 17-minute uh, little, little write-up that Datadog did about uh, how to monitor RabbitMQ. And of course, being a monitoring company, they're like, Obviously, step one, 
Datadog. But what's interesting about it is uh, it goes over like how RabbitMQ works and the different different things that would happen in any event system and therefore what you would want to monitor uh, with it, including mm-hmm. storage and things like that. But it was it was a fun overview of like, uh, you know, when we talk about like day two operations and, and you know, that the uh, the implicit user story is always software should work. It's it's a good it's a good peek into that. So uh, if people like you know monitoring, yep. or if you want to call it observability, wh- whatever you want to do, uh, you should check that out. <laughs> so then also, okay. uh, I, there, there was a uh, in the Economist they took a break from talking about how Facebook is destroying civilization, uh, and and wrote about the the trend of I, we might need to go update our marketing material, Richard, because I think we're supposed to say Edge instead of IoT now. But they had a pretty good overview of uh, the rise of, of edge or IoT sort of like computing from consumer to industrial stuff. And, um, you know, their headline was a little um, <clears throat> headliney. I think the register needs to call up who wrote that headline for him and just <laughs> teach them about alliteration. They have a new headline writer. But it was the era of the cloud's total dominance is drawing to a close. Now, I suppose if you, as they used to say, parse that. What what it, what it hinges on is total dominance, uh, but it is a good overview of uh, off of the public cloud. Here are a bunch of things going on that uh, will probably drive some IT usage. You know, sort of like the uh, the new PC that you would be targeting versus just all mm-hmm. in whatever the cloud is. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I mean, I'll I'll do I guess what people on Twitter do, which is comment without reading the article. Uh, mm. So in this case, based on the title, uh, I, I mean all the public clouds continue to expand like crazy. So this idea also that, hey, I'm going to use more localized things. But I get the point that more things move to the edge. You do more processing, even in the client, like how much stuff is happening in JavaScript. I was on the plane without a connection the other day, and I was still able to do stuff on a couple of websites I didn't expect. So there's always things that are happening more in distributed spots. But this idea that the back end of those won't be the cloud, probably not the case. The cloud keeps moving to more locations, moves to more edges. Look, Cloudflare has a platform now. So all of these sort of technology companies continue to add functionality. I don't, again, not zero sum. It's not going to be Amazon or Edge. Clearly, Amazon has a great Edge story as well, as does Pivotal, as does Azure, as do others. So, yeah, I think it just means we keep feathering it, federating out where stuff runs. You're probably not going to be using a single provider or a single way to deliver compute. That's right. Federating and feathering, two things that go great together. That's that's what I'm thinking. And then and then finally, just as a pointer. So I've I've been sitting on this uh, write up that I had for a while of like some uh, I always think of these as proof points, but just sort of overview of uh, government uh, people, U.S. government people who've done whatever you want to call it, digital transformation or cloud native or DevOps or or as I, you know, at the end of the day, call it, you know, figuring out how to computer better with their uh, custom written software. And uh, it just kind of picks from a lot of public sources about what the IRS has done in the, uh, the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, and even contractors, too often the, uh, the perceived baddie of government work. But uh, there's, there's a lot going on in there, kind of surprisingly for people's uh, bad attitude about government, about how they're improving software. So, so I'll put a link into there, but it's, uh, as always, I think, uh, I think, I think when you look at sort of like the, the process that they, they, uh, adapt, adopt, they adapt to their, whatever they start using and then the, uh, the outcomes that they end up getting. And I think interestingly, especially in the case of the air force, you can see how a few initial projects of doing things on an agile basis where you, 
you're more or less textbook, like uh, even extreme programming, but textbook, like user-centric design and agile, where you're, you're actually talking to the users. This is a novel idea for any sort of software project. Uh, but right. you're talking to them and then you're actually shipping on a weekly basis and adjusting. It helps them expand out into other things, not just that one uh, initial project that they have. So uh, anyhow, I'll put a link to that in there. It's, 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 uh, well, I think it's good stuff. I guess. I do too. It was a good write-up. I read it yesterday. I thought it was a good job. That's right. Uh, so on that note, speaking of talking to actual users, I have to say, uh, Emily, I don't know what I have to say means, but one of the, one of the funnier things that I remember uh, in your talk, which, which we'll go back to summarizing, was uh, and, and also sort of like incisive things, was like every time you want to talk to an end user, everyone wants to get in your way and actually prevent you from talking to an end user. <laughs> And and I think I think you listed listed the familiar cadre of people that uh, would much rather talk to you about in, than than actual end users. But I think I think that one point to broaden it back up was uh, one of many points you were making about how uh, let's say doing good software and taking kind of like an agile approach to software and product management in uh, enterprises. And by enterprises, I sort of mean large companies. Is uh, it has its own challenges and is difficult, but you know, on on that context, like give it give us a, a, a summary of the premise of of this talk that you did. Yeah, it's funny the the talk actually came out of that section of of the of the talk. Uh, I did a lightning talk at a meetup talking about getting to your actual users and and all the challenges pushing through, and as I talked to people afterwards. Um, the conversation naturally shifted into other challenges to building good software and using modern design thinking and product management practices and tech practices in these big companies um, and and just continued develop, developing it from there. Uh, really, the, the talk that I gave was just describing the most common things that I see when I talk to people in big companies, my experiences working in big companies that keep us from doing the things that everyone knows is right. Mm. Um, and the way that we look at products, the way we look, look at what success looks like in a company uh, is very different when you're talking about a big enterprise where, frankly, just checking the box that you got something done on time and on budget is considered success, whether or not it actually does anything for the end users or whether or not it makes a dime of money, as long as you met your commitment and delivered on time and on budget, it's considered a success. Yeah. I'll have to see if I can find this uh, clip art. I think it was in a book somewhere, but I remember uh, I, I remember back in the early 2000s when I was trying to be all agile hipster in, in, in a genuine way. One of my favorite like pieces of clip art were these two people with kind of like the, the harried uh, loosened tie. And one of them was holding up this big like Gantt chart. And he was like, we have the plan. The plan will save us. And they were they were very excited about this plan that they had. But it is representative to me yes. of, of what you're saying of like, yeah, the the plan's great, but uh like the other ninety nine percent of greatness is actual running code that does something useful. <laughs> and so right. d don't get too obsessed with that. So I I wonder like I know this is like a uh, thankless impossible task, but sort of like briefly, can you kind of like lay out a baseline of what everyone knows you should be doing like like what does it mean to have like a good product mindset like uh in contrast to an enterprise if we were like in some functional small team of people of awesomeness or whatever mythical thing that actually doesn't exist out there like what what's the 
what's the good baseline we're shooting towards? Yeah, you know, you hear a lot in the industry of actually solving problems and and focusing on outcomes. Um, you know, making sure that you're you're starting from the user perspective and understanding what the user needs and being able to decide, okay, we want to make a user's life better in this way. And then figuring out how you're going to do it and building, working on it iteratively, releasing, uh, you know, what's kind of become the curse word in the industry, the MVP, um, or something that you can like get out to users quickly. Um, that's what we all are striving to do. But when you get into these big corporations, uh, like you said, you have to get the plan of record. The amount of time I've spent uh, in my career updating plans of record is unbelievable. Um, <laughs> right. And you you build a, a roadmap a year out or two years out or, you know, God forbid, 10 years out, um, thinking that you know what's actually going to happen in a year's time uh, and that you know what the problems you need to solve are a year ahead uh, ahead of time. Um, it, it just doesn't leave room. And then when you're building those plans, you have to say exactly what you're going to build. I, I'm going to build this feature. I'm going to fix this bug and I'm going to fix it sitting here in, you know, February of 2018. I'm going to fix this bug in October of 2018. Well, how do you know that that's still going to be the most important thing to do in October of 2018? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you know, how do we take the things that we hear about when we go to conferences and when we go to meetups and we read all of the articles and we, we read Lean Startup and, and we want to go and do these experiments and try to understand what metrics we should be uh, building to, how do we actually do that in a big enterprise? Yeah, I mean, one one thing you I think about as you explain that, I was reading some Forrester survey the other day that that talked about budgeting practices and funding, and you mentioned this as well. Is I mean, is that sometimes the trigger for this? I mean, why are we stuck on plan of records? Is it because there's an annual funding cycle, and therefore I have to prove what I'm going to spend my money on? Like, what do you think is that upstream driver that that steers us into this hyper planning model versus let's be responsive to customer need, let's be a little more adaptable to what's going on? What do you think that trigger is? Yeah, I think I, I do think the funding model is the trigger to a lot of it. And the funding model comes out of a desire for control. Um, you know, when you've got big companies that have hundreds of products, they're managing big portfolios. Um, at some point, someone's looking to say, how can we make sure that we're spending our money the most effectively? Um, and it's it's easier it, it's it's much more it's it, much easier to grasp for leadership to say we're going to have everybody submit all of the projects that they want to do and then we're going to decide which of those projects deserves funding and then we're going to fund the project based off of a scope that people have told us up front um, and and then we're going to measure on if people delivered on that scope so you end up with these processes where you're having to to request down to the line item exactly what you want to build really far in advance whereas when you look at uh, kind of what's generally accepted as better practices is to build something small and iterate on that and continue to uh, try to decide kind of what comes next based on market feedback. So the the funding model doesn't really allow for responsiveness to change or uh, responsiveness to kind of getting feedback from your users or from the market. And if you want to change, you have to go back through request processes and go make justifications. And, and a lot of companies, they even kind of say, you know, hey, uh, if you 
if, if you decide that what you want to build is not the right thing, we're not necessarily going to give your product the additional funding. We might move that to a different product. So it incentivizes teams to kind of be very protective of their budget. And even if they see it's the wrong thing and they want to change or they want to shift directions, they kind of are forced to keep going forward on the path that they're on because that is how they keep their funding. Um, mm. So, you know, I think if, if you're able to actually fund products differently and fund the product instead of the project, um, it allows the product managers, the product owners, the people who are actually on the ground and closest to the customers to be able to, to know and be able to act on what they see um, within their data, what they see in interviews. Um, but that's uncomfortable for executives to do because it requires a lot of trust uh, to give the teams the autonomy they need to do that. Yeah, I mean, you're you're making me sad when you you say those things because it's all it's all super. I mean, I've lived that before, and in my experience, what you just said, I think, is you think of funding products versus projects. So yeah, so help someone chip away at that. So if somebody's nodding their head sadly as they listen to you say that and say, "Yep, that sounds exactly like how I have to plan my 2019 stuff already. It's 2018." Like there's this this giant cycle. How do I tangibly start chipping away? Is it to say, look, let's find a couple of key mission critical products and make sure we build balanced teams around those and fund that team in independent of releases and projects and things like that? How does big company X kind of start really incorporating this, not just lip service? Yeah, that what you just said is actually exactly where I would start. I would, you know, kind of start with with one team and and prove the model out of being able things differently and even within that team. So um, I did this at uh, at the last company I was at prior to coming to Pivotal. Um, we actually had a team, we still listed our, I would say, quote unquote projects, but it was really more buckets of funding around some themes. And so I was able to say, okay, uh, you know, I want to improve the traveler experience. Uh, I want to, you know, form partnerships with additional third parties or, you know, kind of some different general categories. Um, we built up the amount of funding we were asking for based on some hypothetical projects. So we think we might improve the in-transit experience through these types of, of projects and, and kind of came up with a target number, but then got agreement from leadership that, okay, I'm going to go forward with these themes and these strategies. Um, the actual the actual projects and the line items within the, that bucket of hours may change as the years as the year goes on, and we're going to keep an updated roadmap. We're going to continue to refine what the next right thing is to build, um, but we're going to spend this much money on this product. Um, and you know, being able to frame it a little bit more as a test or kind of as you know as the exception, um, let it let it be palatable. Um, but I think what it started to show is that, you know, when we were able to give examples where something that we didn't even know was going to be on the radar at the beginning of the year suddenly became really important. And we were able to turn on a dime and, and, and exploit some opportunities that came our way that in the old model, we wouldn't have been able to do. It would have been way too much red tape. It started to prove that, yeah, this is a viable way of, of running a product. Is that a metric you would show? Like if you were measuring that at the end of the year, it can't be touchy feely, right? There's got to be a reason that giving yes. this team $7 million to run as a product yielded benefits. So yeah, what are those KPIs? Yeah. So we as a product kind of set out what our metrics were. So we in, in general had 
three big ones. You know, we had an acquisition metric, an engagement metric, and uh, a revenue target. And so we kind of from those targets came out with what we thought we could do to impact them. And then, um, you know, basically the company agreed to, here's how much investment we think these targets are worth. Um, And we really got put on the hook for those targets a little more than other products were because, um, you know, historically, again, as long as you met your on time on budget, uh, it was, those were usually built out of some business plans, but no one ever actually went back to the business plan to see if they did what they said they were going to do, as long as you got the features out that you said you were going to get out. Um, We were held a little bit more accountable to the actual numbers and the outcomes of what we built, um, which is what we should be anyway. Like if a a product is getting things out on time and on budget, but they're building the wrong things, then maybe that product's not what's needed in the market. So that's how, that's kind of how we managed it within, within one large company. Mm -hmm. So I've noticed in, uh, I don't know, my, my uh, paying attention or trying to figure out change management that as, as part of what you're saying, a lot of it gets down to, uh, uh, to use Hollywoody terms, you got to have this one, uh, let's call it a little break, not a big break where, where someone says, Oh, you should just try that in the new way. (laughs) Like, like you just, at some point you have to get a small enough project where, uh, you can see if it works out and sort of prove to yourself that, that it pans out. And I don't know, sometimes like a, a skunk works kind of thing uh, works out, which has its own risks. Like if you fail at it, then you'll probably get fired or, uh, you know, be assigned to uh, write the new supply chain management system for pencils and post-it notes or stickies, as I think we're supposed <laughs> to say. Uh, but it, it, it does kind of get to uh, getting someone to say that and, and, even the way I'm wording it is a little weird. Give permission for it. It gets to another point that you raised up that was fun. And that's like, there, there's always this mysterious entity called uh, they, that, that, you know, they won't let you do this. Or sometimes I think they turns into a we, like we don't do things that way. But there's, there's this uh, sort of like headless uh, sort of body of authority that people keep uh, referencing as, as a reason you can't do that. And so, so what, you know, how would you describe who this, this sort of they is and then, and then how you sort of like tactically deal with almost like the, uh, is if falsity is a word, almost like the myth of who they is so you can get beyond it. The concept of, of the figure that I like to call the mysterious they is, is I think a big challenge in big companies. Um, it's, it's really the thing that gets thrown out as a conversation ender um, and becomes a way to deflect responsibility from the things that you just either don't want to deal with or from your own opinion. Uh, so yeah, an example I gave in, in the talk and really where this concept came from, you know, we had an, an outage one time that caused them to, you know, caused our enterprise architecture team to lock down the data center. No changes could go in. Nothing could happen unless you could prove, you know, you're going to be losing $200,000 of revenue a day or, or some insane metric. Um, for my product, we were completely unrelated to the system that had the outage. We weren't touching anything that could even come close to taking it down, but they wouldn't let me put uh, do a change that my customers needed, and that was really important to my market. And so I start talking to one of the ops guys and, and just say, well, you know, who do I need to talk to in order to make this happen? And he said, well, there's just no way they're going to let you do that. And I said, well, who's they? And 
he kind of paused for a second and said, what do you mean? I was like, well, is that the, the, you know, CTO? Is that our, is that our chief technology officer? I can go talk to her. I'm more than happy to have that conversation. He's like, well, no, that's not, she doesn't make that call. And I just walked down the org chart until he finally admitted that like, there was no they that was really stopping this. He just didn't want to go ask the question or he assumed that the, uh, he assumed he already knew the answer. And, and at the end of the day, no one really had the authority to say yes, but a bunch of people had the authority to say no. Um, and so, you know, I, I just, it became a, a phrase that I, I may say I became famous or, or infamous for of, you know, okay, who is they? Who's the mysterious they? I want to talk to they and have a conversation about why we need to do things differently. Um, so, and frankly, the biggest the biggest way I have found to push through that is to just push back and to just be the person to constantly, you know, just say, who is they? Tell me who I need to talk to. Who's the person who can make the decision? Um, uh, you know, people want to appear like they've made thoughtful decisions about these things and that they, that these are like actual policies that are grounded in reason and procedure. And a lot of times it's not, a lot of times it's just, I don't want to ask the question or I assume the answer is going to be no. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that, that, that that makes me kind of coalesce uh, a a few things. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always, uh, well, it's always good when you're talking to a room full of people to start uh, bagging on managers first. People find that delightful. Uh, but <laughs> but more genuinely, uh, I guess I say that speaking to two managers effectively. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it, do, it does make me think that one of the responsibilities in, in computering better, as I was joking about earlier, that managers have is to almost like unday themselves in the sense of um, it's easy – for for let's say staff and teams to kind of imagine and presume what what managers would say and what their reaction would be to things kind of based on yesterday's policy so to speak or just the status quo you know use uh, the old uh, larman's law or whatever but you know it's it's been my own experience in in uh, suggesting change and doing things that oftentimes you go to like a decision maker or whatever uh, and you kind of propose new things to them, and they're usually pretty open to it. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. We should do that. <laughs> and I get the feeling that a lot of people in the types of large organizations I talk to, they don't really think of managers as very accessible as, as someone that they could uh, talk with. And instead, they're kind of in their uh, executive tower. So I don't know. It seems like that's part of what you would want managers to do is to, you know, I probably no one should ever use that open door policy again, but to somehow communicate that uh, they'd actually like them to uh, ask things. I'll, on the other hand, I think you had a Dilbert cartoon illustrating that point of wow, it's terrible. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why I want to almost flip that into a question, Emily, and say, I mean, again, going back to that same Forrester thing I just read two days ago was that many of the respondents, like 30% said lack of executive leadership on Agile was kind of just a barrier in general to adapting new mindsets. So to Cote's kind of point and what you mentioned, like how does a management team start to change? Whether that's a, a middle manager or an executive, like is it about finding the edges of your authority and sometimes pushing up against that so you can actually make decisions? Is it kind of encouraging a different level of empowerment? Like what is that change that has to happen in management so it doesn't become this they? It becomes, yep, let's make the call and I'll justify it later. Or, hey, there's a smaller pool of people who make decisions and we can just move. Kind of how do you find that and how do you coach a manager to, to get better? 
Yeah, the first thing is empowerment. Uh, you you have to empower your teams to make decisions, and you have to give them the room to make some mistakes and do some things that don't work. Uh, a lot of times, you know, nobody gets fired for not trying things. You know, it's generally people people get fired for trying something that doesn't go well. But that's actually who we should be encouraging and who we should be investing in are the people who are willing to try different things and and challenge the status quo. Um, so you have to be able to show examples of when you've given someone empowerment and not just when it's gone well, but when it hasn't gone well and they didn't get the hammer dropped on them. You know, they didn't get all of their funding pulled. They didn't get fired. They didn't get demoted. Um, that, that they actually got elevated for trying an experiment that didn't work and maybe saving us a bunch of money or at least, you know, testing out a theory that, that had never been tested before. Um, the other aspect I think is also letting people test some of those theories. I guess that's really goes back to the empowerment as well. Um, you know, especially in, in big companies. And I found myself, you know, I managed a team of, of people in, in my last company that, um, you know, I would get a new person on my team who would come in with ideas and I could immediately see where some of these things were probably not going to work because we tried similar things in the past or we had thought through or someone had told me that that wouldn't work because they had tried it in the past. Um, and it was really tempting to just kind of say no to everything and and like, oh, there's just no way that that would work. Um, you know, let let people try things. Let people, you know, at a minimum, let them take the time to do the thought experiment on how would I test this out? How would I go about these things without immediately shutting down? Uh, you know, oh, there's just no way that that would work. Uh, you have to have to give people the room to, to grow. Yeah. How do you see this then reconcile with, you know, this move, I, know, I guess call it DevOps, whatever, but this idea of these teams that are balanced teams or whatever the right team makeup is, we're you don't have to ask for so much outside approval, right? Because if you're running it as a product, you have more say in what happens. And maybe I don't have to open tickets to get infrastructure because, look, we're using a platform where I don't need to request infrastructure. I just push code. So where do you see the team makeup, first of all, having to come into play? Is this co-located teams and balanced teams? Or can you work with separate PMOs and dev teams and finance teams and what have you? And then Kind of how do you try to maybe increase the scope of what you're responsible for so I don't have to find a they. The they is us. So we can just make our own decisions. Yeah. Ideally, uh, ideally a team should be completely autonomous and, and have everything they need and able to uh, and able to create software and put it out into the market. So everything from being able to, you know, ideate on the ideas, come up with the strategy, um, as making sure that it ties into the company strategy and it's pushing forward company goals. Um, but once you get into the actual what we're building, you should have uh, a team that has product management, design, engineering, um, all the way through to DevOps, um, you know, as much as you can to where a team could potentially come up with a feature build it, test it out, put it into production, you know, on their own within a week. Um, that, that allows the team to be able to try more things, to maneuver within the space that they have um, and, and actually get things to the end users. Um, I see so often, you know, really that last mile, like you, you'll, you'll have the, the autonomous team within 
product management, design, and engineering, but when it comes to actually deploying it to the end user, they kind of get cut off at the knees. Um, right. You know, it has to go through 18 rounds of security approvals. It's got to have, you know, load, load testing, and we've got to fill out a checklist, making sure that we've done all the things. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, it becomes really difficult to release. So then the the thought of something going wrong on a release becomes a much bigger deal because releasing is hard. Whereas if you can make releasing really easy, if I have a bug in my software and I can fix it and get it back out into production within an hour, um, you know, the, the, just the concept of releasing becomes less risky and the concept of things going wrong becomes less risky. Um, so the more process you add, the, the more risky it becomes. Um, so then you become more risk averse and you want to add more process to keep the risk from happening. Um, so, you know, using a platform where you can get, uh, where you can let the teams take back a lot of that control within, you know, within reason, you, you the reason that, that platforms like PCF exist is to make it to where you can, you can have the controls to where you're not introducing risk by letting your developers release into production. Um, right. So the more that you can do that and the more that you can kind of get get the full stack on one team, the better. Um, ideally, co-located is even better on top of that. Um, the conversations that you'll have when you have co-located teams versus even just the same city but in different buildings or on different floors of the same building is shocking. Um, you know, I, at one point I was sitting right in the middle of of my development team as a product manager. And, you know, we were able to have these conversations. I would overhear things and be able to um, answer questions more quickly. And they would ask me questions because I was right there rather than waiting. Uh, we actually ended up moving into a different building where we were even on the same floor in the same space, but instead of sitting right in the middle of the development team, I sat I'm talking maybe 20 feet away. It was not a big change at all. And we actually saw our uh, our communication cycle and our rapid communication uh, decrease just with a, you know, 20-foot walk. Uh, because it just, anytime that you put something in the way of getting an answer or having those conversations, it makes you think twice about, well, do I want to interrupt them? Do I want to walk over there? Is it important enough to ask? Um, it, you know, it just having that co-located team makes that communication happen so much faster. Mm -hmm. So I have one more question for you and I'll let Cote uh, bring us home. But, you know, with your experience talking to, to large companies and, and hearing some of these stories, I think sometimes it can be this kind of feeling that we all go like, oh, these, these enterprises, like, aren't they just all nuts? But, but in reality, I mean, like our, all of our lives are impacted greatly by these companies being good at this stuff. Like I really desperately want my bank and my grocer and my travel company. I mean, I want them to be great. So what are the enterprise advantages you see that these companies should actually remember that they should take advantage of that? You know, most enterprises have, you would think some inherent advantages that Pivotal does try to help them regain them sometimes when software upstarts kind of disrupt them. But what do you see when you come into an enterprise and say, gosh, you should be taking advantage of A, B, C, and D. This is what, you know, if you get good at software and capitalize on this, you're going to, you know, you're on a rocket ship. You're going to be doing great. Yeah. Uh, you know, people always talk about startups changing the world and, and being the ones to disrupt things and really make a difference. But if you look at the vast amount of resources that these large enterprises have, startups can't even touch it. Um, the amount, the amount of money, the amount of reach, uh, the the number of people that they're already touching on a daily basis. Uh, if if enterprises could really 
get in there and be able to do these things in a different way and start to solve real customer problems, they are just in a much better position than most startups to have a real impact in a much quicker way. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with uh, some people at Microsoft at one point, and they were talking about a baseline product and like, oh yeah, you know, I mean, really all that we need in order to consider this a success is, you know, if we, if we got this out to like, a hundred million people, we'd be really happy. And to them, a hundred million people was a small number. Uh, whereas like my product, I thought I was doing good when I hit a million users at one point and, <laughs> and you know, for a, for a consumer mobile app. And you start to realize just the, the scale of impact. It, um, the, the enterprises have the ability to just touch people so much faster. Um, you know, if you're looking at a, a, you know, fintech and, and financial startups, you know, ones that are trying to gain their first million users or their first hundred thousand users compared to, you know, if Capital One was able to do something and hit however many million people at one time, um, the impact is just so much greater. And then the resources behind it, uh, the amount of, um, you know, the amount of funding that big enterprises can put into solving some of the world's hardest problems. Um, if you had the right way of thinking about them and the right way of doing um, software development and understanding users and understanding what the problems are out there, uh, they could they could be solving some of the world's toughest challenges and some of the really important things much faster than any of the little startups could that are hoping for their first round of funding. No, no, that's it's exciting. Even when everyone panics when Amazon enters an industry, and yes, Amazon does great stuff, but you know, at the same time, Google tried to become a telco and, and dropped out of that because that was hard. And other companies have a built-in advantage. So I like when companies respond to somebody encroaching on their market with kind of a game-on mode. Like, okay, now's the time for us to step in, not to be scared of Amazon, Google, Microsoft, whomever else. But to your points, let's let's take advantage of what we've got and and go win on this market. I'm glad we help people with that. I hope that these enterprises don't get a defeatist attitude and instead realize their opportunity. Right. I see so many enterprises that will try to legislate their way out of disruption or, um, you know, like put up more roadblocks to try to keep the things that keep things the same and, and protect their business model. Uh, and And it's like if they just took that challenge instead and said, we're just going to make it better. Like there's obviously a problem here. There's obviously a gap that we're not solving. Um, you know, let's find ways to, to win by being better as opposed to win just by being able to out legislate everyone else. So, so the last, the last question I had, I think, I think, uh, you know, uh, anyone who's like vaguely read the back of a cereal box about the French revolution, like the concern you might have is like, uh, so when we get this new way put into place, how do we make sure it doesn't become a new bureaucracy? And so I'm curious, like, as you've observed large organizations, which are very prone to put uh, sort of like bureaucracy in place, because it can be great, right? Like that's a huge way that you uh, you scale. But like, how, how do you think in putting, uh, you know, a lot of this thought into place, you can also put in a process that ensures you don't equally cement up around this new thing when uh, new and better things come along. Yeah. Uh, the, one of the biggest things that, that we like to focus on is uh, continuous improvement and continuous feedback. Um, and I think that that's very important in making sure that uh, 
bureaucracies don't build up that start to get in the way. So, you know, within our XP processes, we have retros every week on a team level. We have them at office levels. Um, and whenever you start seeing too many, like, checklists and things come in that usually starts to play out in uh you know in our retros and we'll have conversations about them i think that that companies and executives should be doing that at their levels as well um and and trying to see where uh you know where they can be continually improving and not and basically breaking down processes rather than adding new ones um it is a really big risk because the the more you scale the more uh kind of coordination starts to be needed and people need ways you know to kind of report on programs and and things like that um but i think it's just important that that leadership keep in mind that the teams are where the decisions need to be made um and if they and focus the processes on how to get information out of the teams, not disseminate information back into them. I guess if that makes sense. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think for, uh, you know, more or less us nerd types, the idea of like recursiveness is sort of like a, uh, a natural sort of thing to think about. But there's, I don't know how the uh, leadership MBA set is, what their comfort level with recursion is. But uh, they seem to like to talk about fractals because that's a lot prettier. But anyways, uh, <laughs> when, when it comes to like continuous learning and continuous improvement, uh, I think I think that recursive nature of it, uh, it's sort of how it sort of bends back on itself as a notion. And you want to continually be figuring out if your continuous learning is a good idea, <laughs> so to speak, right. uh, seems to be something that's uh, extremely helpful for those organizations that that do want to improve. Well, uh, thanks for being on. If people want to, uh, I don't know, keep up with you on the internet or uh, check out other things you have, what's what's a good thing for them to look up? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and basically everywhere at the Daily M E M, and um, yeah, that's really where you can find me. I love talking product. I love talking tech. So reach out. Yeah, yeah, and there and there's there's at least two other talks of yours recorded. One that I saw at the uh, the lightning thing about how you should uh, turn you should shouldn't feel bad about turning your hobbies into uh, things you're interested in, and sort of confessions of a serial hobbyist. I think always always good to have a combination of uh, therapy and advice about how to thrive, self therapy <laughs> as it were. And uh, there's another good one. I guess is a, a little old now, but where where I think you do a good job, uh, or in my opinion, you do a good job of. I don't know, demystifying what an MVP is versus how do, how do you characterize it? Like there's two words that begin with V, v or something, right? I, I forget the one slide you have. Yeah. So there's a kind of minimum viable product. I, I talked about a different concept of minimum viable release point. So when's the first point that I can release? Yeah. Um, also heard it referred to as minimum valuable product at that time. Uh, it's had many iterations since 2015 in the industry, but, uh, but yeah, it's uh, thoughts around how to get things out to customers in early stages when you already have a product in market. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and to your point of it uh, evolving under many different names, I think, I think it's a, uh, it's, 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 it's a good alternative to maybe hopefully the only statement I ever get remembered for is don't do dumb stuff. In the sense of like, if 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 you think that like agile or MVPs means you're gonna like release some lame software, 
no, that's not what it means, <laughs> right? Like, like obviously right. it doesn't mean doing dumb stuff. Uh, but anyways, it's, it's, it's a good overview of that with perhaps the largest uh, screen I have ever seen a presentation put on. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that must have been very intimidating to, uh, I, I think. Was, that was a lot of fun. That's the, that was the product management festival in Zurich, Switzerland. They still hold it at that same location. So every year uh, it's the, the, biggest screen ever that you'll present in front of yeah i i think if you were to imagine like one of those little uh, uh check boxes on a on an app or or a web page i think they were taller than you on on that <laughs> screen this is massive uh well anyways uh, as always thanks for listening this has been another pivotal conversations if you want to get the latest episodes and quickly browse all the fascinating back catalog including many conversations like this talking about pivotal cloud foundry and also uh, conversations we have with actual uh, users and managers and uh, people who are not just uh, us vendors trying to peddle stuff. You can go to soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations. And usually about every Thursday, if I remember to do my work, uh, that you can go see the full show notes, including links to things we've talked about here at pivotal.io slash blog. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>